Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Amplifier Advocacy. I'm your host today, Vince Wolf, And today we've got a special guest, Jonah Gottlieb. He's a climate change advocate from Petaluma, California, co-host of the podcast Our Future Now, and policy director and co-founder of the New Party Coalition. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Vincent. Um, so my name is Jonah, as you said. Um, I'm from Petaluma, California, which is in Sonoma County, uh, north of the Bay Area. And I'm currently living in Berkeley. Uh, and I just turned 19. Oh, awesome. Um, so you said you're living in Berkeley. I'm assuming you go to UC Berkeley then? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And what are you studying there? Political science, surprising. Um, surprising uh, absolutely no one. <laughs> I also am a political science major as well. So let's see here. So regarding climate change, specifically like getting yourself into the advocacy world of climate change, was there any specific events that kind of prompted you to want to pursue advocating for climate change itself? Yeah. Um, so I first got involved in the climate justice movement uh, after the fires that swept through Sonoma County in October of 2017. Okay. Um, and so our house was right outside the evacuation zone. So at that time we didn't have to evacuate, uh, but we woke up at 3 a.m. with about 20 of our friends pounding on our door because they were just evacuated and had nowhere else to go. So for about a week, we were all stuck inside, you know, a couple dozen people, you know, inside our relatively small house, you know, 12 year olds and dogs bouncing off the walls from all these different families. Yeah. Um, and I had learned about climate change before. And I had always, you know, perhaps naively assumed that, okay, the adults really don't, aren't doing anything because it's not really affecting them. Like right. the, the people in power are very privileged but right. climate change is going, you know, going to impact them and then they'll do something. And then it became very clear after the fire, oh no, they're not doing anything anyway. You know, entire communities were, you know, burnt to the ground. And it was interesting because the fires uh, t in Santa Rosa, two main neighborhoods burned. Uh, Coffee Park, which is predominantly uh, lower, in lower income folks, Latino folks. Um, and then also Fountain Grove, which is like, mostly very well-off, rich white people. And so the fact that both these communities were impacted and yet a lot of the elected officials weren't even acting, even when it was, even when climate change was affecting the most wealthy, you know, most privileged people in our society. And so I was like, okay, it's clear they're not gonna do anything. And so I decided to join the movement to get involved in, you know, fighting for a livable planet. Right. Yeah. And I guess by seeing both sides of the spectrum being affected equally, it kind of showed you that it's uh, a borderless kind of situation. It's not, there's no prejudice in uh, climate change, I guess, specifically, and especially with global warming too, as well, because it affects everybody. And I feel like the point you made earlier too, about how the people who are in power or actually have the legislative power to, you know, change and enact certain policies probably don't want to, or it's probably not up high on their list because like you said, it's not affecting them. They're not seeing it on a day-to-day -day basis. So that that's very interesting too. And, I, and it's almost like, I guess with most other advocacy as well, because you look at other groups such as like police brutality groups that are fighting for police reform and they're affected on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you're also looking at um, even with financial inequality as well, because you see people who are struggling to make ends meet and people up 
in DC who could easily, I, I guess it's hard for me to say, but I would assume that it would be easier for them to change stuff. They just don't see that. So they don't really have a priority to change it. So it's awesome that you're, being, you're, you're able to put yourself in a position that you want to advocate for climate change specifically. And it's pushing, I feel like, people who are higher up and actually have power to be able to, you know, change. Yeah, I will say, though, even though climate change does impact everyone, it affects certain groups uh, disproportionately because what climate change right. does is because it impacts everyone, it exacerbates the existing issues that exist in our society. Right. Um, and so, you know, communities of color, poor communities that are, you know, more likely to be located near fossil fuel infrastructure are obviously more impacted by the fossil fuel industry. People in the global south who are, you know, say living in island nations or who are, you know, dependent on certain industries or who are going to be facing food deserts in the next few decades are obviously mm -hmm. much more impacted than, you know, people with the privilege that I have. And then even looking in the United States, um, you know, disabled people, queer people, uh, unhoused people, um, all these folks are going to be way more impacted by the climate crisis. So while climate change does impact everyone, there's obviously layers to it. Um, and so it's an important, especially for me as a white dude, um, to not be a leader of this movement. I want to be clear that I am in no way a leader of this movement, but rather, you know, a part of it. And, you know, I am working in solidarity with a lot of these folks who, you know, are, you know, are more directly impacted by the climate crisis than I have. And so my, you know, chief responsibility is kind of leveraging my privilege that I do have in order to, you know, create more opportunities and p pass along more opportunities for these folks who are doing such amazing work. Right. And then kind of following up question that you'd said initially, would you say it's also kind of like a trickle down effect with um, other problems that we're seeing today in modern America? Because I know how you'd said it's disproportionately affecting lower income families and people who aren't necessarily um, as privileged as other people might be. So do you think that by fixing certain aspects of this climate change crisis that will also subsequently fix problems that might be affecting, like you said, food deserts or even with like housing as well? Do you think that it's like a root problem or do you think it's something that's like different? Yeah. So I think we actually have an opportunity with climate change because it's such a monumental problem and such a monumental threat. We can't just like slap a Band-Aid onto our existing society mm -hmm. and be like, okay, that'll deal with climate change because every single aspect of our society has played into cl the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And so we can't solve the climate crisis without also uprooting and destroying these systems of oppression that have helped fuel it. Things like imperialism and colonialism and right. patriarchy and capitalism. These systems that have, you know, put people down and weaponize the exploitation of people in order to build up industries, have built up the fossil fuel industry, have built up, you know, all these things that are contributing to this climate crisis that is making things even worse. Right. It's just like something you got to detangle as well because it's got reaches everywhere. So I guess, yeah, that's just going to be something. And it kind of similar to that question too is within the next 20 years, do you think we'll be able to see a significant amount of change d depending on, I mean, we're looking at the trajectory of how much uh, advocacy is actually being pushed forward right now, whether it be in the actual White House or if it's like grassroots. Do you think we'll see a significant change in your opinion based upon what you know and what you're involved with? Yeah, so we're going to see a significant change no matter what. Either we're going to see a change in policy that results in us fully addressing the scale of the climate crisis at the scope that's needed, or we're going to see 
more natural disasters, more people starving, more people losing their jobs, losing their homes. And that, of course, will also have to spark policy change. And so, but I do think that there's real momentum that the movement has right now. And so that does give me hope. But again, it's not good enough of what we're seeing coming out of Washington still. Um, mm. So I'm not sure if you saw on Earth Day as part of his climate summit, President Biden released his NDC goals, so his nationally determined contributions. Right. So this is the amount of CO2 emissions that he wants to cut by 2030 based on uh, 2005 levels. Mm -hmm. And so what I and a lot of other advocates were pushing for was a 70% cut because that's what the science says that we need to do. And we, as Joe Biden said on the campaign trail, believe in the science. And so Joe Biden promised 50%, which again is, is double what Obama promised and is, you know, worlds better than anything Trump would have done. Right. But it's still 20% off where we need to be. And so you can't half-ass, can I swear? Is that? Yeah, totally. Yeah, you're, 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 you're okay. Yeah. Um, so you can't half-ass climate change because yeah. it, it's an all or nothing thing. Either right. we, you know, once the ice caps melt and the CO2 that's currently being stored there is released, we can't get it back. And right. so if, if we, you know, there are no prizes for getting second place because if we don't win this battle, it's going to be hell. Yeah. And the 50% number that you had mentioned, do you think that the primary obstacle for him not being able to achieve the 70% is the uh, slim margins he has in the House? Do you think it's just because it's going to probably be Republican opposition? Or do you think there's another reason behind not being able to get the full 70%? Um, I think it's interesting. I think that Joe Biden's governing in a way where it's like, he's coming to the table already with his compromise. Right. And then, it, and then the Republicans want him to compromise further. And, yeah. the, you know, right wing Democrats want him to that are, you know, very crucial to this slim majority are wanting exactly. to compromise further. And so I think it's just bad strategy on the White House's part. You know, if I use the example of like centrism and especially GOP opposition, is very performative and they're going to oppose everything that Joe Biden does. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the example that I use is like, if Joe Biden came out and said he supported Medicare for the entire world, then the centrists would say, well, let's just get Medicare for all in the United States because they right. have to oppose something. And so I think that Joe Biden should go as big as possible. And then if he has to compromise, then at least it's meeting halfway. But right now what he's doing is he's meeting halfway and then he's having to meet halfway of halfway. So we're only getting a quarter. Yeah. I, and that actually makes a lot, a lot more sense too, especially seeing other policies that he's had to compromise on already that aren't related necessarily to climate change, but hopefully in the future that they'll be able to come to a better compromise than 50%, maybe even 60%. Um, following up on that question. Hang on. Uh, sorry. Do you want That's to okay. Yeah. No, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then again, we need the 70%. We need to go even bigger than 70% because we need actually 195% worldwide. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's all part of the Fair Shares NDCs, which I, which I can plug if you guys want to include a link to it in the description of this or something. Totally. That'd be great. Yeah, we can do that in the podcast description. So thank cool. you. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so again, the science says that we need 70% at least. Like 70% is the minimum of what the United States should be doing. And so, again, it just comes down to whether the administration actually believes in the science that they've been trumpeting. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other thing is Joe Biden can do so many things that are not reliant on Congress. He cancels, right. you know, 
he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, which was huge and a huge win for, you know, the indigenous activists and the climate mm -hmm. activists that have been fighting to cancel that for years. Um, and really a testament to the amazing gra grassroots organizing that they've been doing. But at the same time, Biden is continuing to push for the Dakota Access Pipeline and push for line three and line five in the courts. And mm -hmm. his Department of Justice is continuing to say, uh, oppose the Giuliana v. U.S. case, which is the youth suing, suing the uh, U.S. government on behalf of our generation for their uh, terrible climate policies. And so Biden is continuing to uphold a lot of Trump's judicial policies and a lot of executive actions that he could take to address the climate crisis. In addition to a lot of all other non-climate related issues, he's just not doing. So I think that in politics, there's a tendency to always, you know, single out a couple people in Congress who are blocking your agenda, no matter who's in the White House. And I think that, you know, this administration, it's Senator Manchin, Sen Senator Cinema, a few other folks like that. And while they are, you know, being incredible impediments uh, to real progress by blocking things like the filibuster, there is so much that the White House can do without Congress that they're just refusing to do. And so it's our job as organizers to keep pu pushing them and to keep mobilizing so that they can give into the pressure and do things that actually help the American people. Most definitely. And you actually answered the next question I was going to ask you. So let's see here. We were just talking about, oh, I was going to ask you too regarding the state of California. Mm -hmm. um, today, they actually just released news. Uh, Governor Newsom just said he's going to allocate $500 million to uh, combat against this upcoming wildfire season. So specifically here in California, do you think that there's more we can do? Because I know wildfires is probably the biggest threat that we have on the climate spectrum. Um, is there anything else other than, you know, setting aside funds that we can do? Because I know we have um, a large fire department system here in the state, but I know people have mentioned, um, you know, trying to trim down as much uh, dead shrubbery and brush that you can, but all of those like minimal things, I feel like it's still not enough. So is there anything you think we could do to combat and stuff like that? Yeah, totally. So I think a huge thing that we can do, number one is start phasing out fossil fuels immediately because we need to obviously address the root of the problem, which is the climate crisis. And so Governor Newsom did release a plan uh, to start doing that by 2045, which is still 15 years later that we need, but at least it gives us a slimmer of, of you know, daylight where we can be like, okay, at least he's open to it. Now we can push him. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of great bills that have passed the California legislature in the past, you know, little bit. Uh, and there are also a lot of great bills that have been blocked uh, by the moneyed interests that are opposing climate action. But I think in terms specifically of addressing the fires, is it you bring up a really great point, which is cl climate adaptation and climate mitigation. Mm -hmm. Because the, cli the climate crisis is happening, happening right now. Like it's already started and we can't go back. Right. The best we can do is hit pause on it. And the current world we have is the world that we will get to keep. And so a big part of what we have to do is adapt to, you know, the things like the fires that are becoming, a, you know, a yearly occurrence in my community. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of things we can do. A big misconception, actually, is that the fires are due uh, 100% due to climate change, or at least mostly due to climate change. But these fires are actually due more to, in California at least, more to our relationship with the land. Um, mm -hmm. And so in California, we've been engaging in fire suppression. 
So fire is a natural part of California's ecosystem. And, you know, there have been natural fires in California for millions of years, the same way, mm -hmm. like, you know, there's been rain in California for millions of years. And at every time it rains, we don't immediately rush to like, I don't know, stop the clouds from forming or something like that. Right. But every time there's a fire, we immediately go to put it out, um, yeah. which is just not how our ecosystem was designed to function. And so mm -hmm. the indigenous people who, you know, were the, the sole stewards of the land before colonialism were had a really healthy relationship with the fire and engaged in cultural burning, which in addition to doing things like clearing out all the fuel loads, um, also, you know, helped the plants and animals um, who were adapted to having fire in their ecosystems. Mm -hmm. um, and then during colonialism, first with Russia and then with the Spanish and then the United States, um, we started a lot of fire suppression. And so actually fire exclusion and prohibiting uh, native peoples from engaging in controlled burns and, or sorry, excuse me, we uh, prohibited and excluded people from engaging in prescribed burns and cultural burns. Um, but then also starting this fire suppression policy of every single time there's a fire, you have to put it out immediately. And mm -hmm. so what that resulted in, because there was no natural healthy fire to go and clear out all this dead brush and these fuels, they just kept building up and building up and building up. And so now when there's a fire that, you know, gets out of control, it's just a tinderbox because the entire state is just full of stuff waiting to burn. Right. Um, and so what we can do is have our state government and local governments give funds to and work directly with uh, indigenous communities um, who are still here today engaging in cultural burns um, so that they can have the tools and resources that they need to continue doing this work. And then we as, you know, non-native people can then also learn from them and see how we can have a more healthy relationship with this land that we've settled on. Right. And similar to that too, I believe it's just because with it, it's, it's like how we talked about earlier with climate change trickling down into other aspects of problems that we're still seeing today. So with like housing, I feel like because we're encroaching more and more into places where we necessarily hadn't built structures before. And then, like you said, with suppressing the fires, obviously we don't want to burn down these structures. So it becomes necessary to burn to suppress these fires, but then we're not allowing for um, the prescribed burns like you talked about. So it's just an endless cycle, it seems like. Yeah, I was actually at a prescribed burn uh, with the Healdsburg Fire Department. Um, oh, okay. On Wednesday. Um, and so we were doing a prescribed burn right on the other side of the ridge of the Wallbridge fire, which was the super devastating one from August 2020 that the smoke mm -hmm. came down here and to you know the bay area and made it super smoky and turned the skies orange and all like that um yeah. and so we were doing these prescribed burns because that hillside is going to burn regardless mm -hmm. and so when we're able to fight the fires on our terms and you know have it burn in a way that we we can protect homes that are in the wooey the wildland urban interface that mm -hmm. have been built in places that you know are, were designed by mother nature to burn then it's much easier to protect people and protect homes than it is when, you know, later in the summer when the entire state's on fire and firefighters are just running around trying to save people's lives. Right. Yeah. I also heard an interesting point about specifically more about the firefighters. It's kind of like a, a tangent, but um, just how much it can actually affect their mental health as well, because when you're fighting fires this large and in this um, in the amount of ferocity that they have it's nearly impossible to actually stop them or to do any major combative effort against it so they start to break down mentally just because you know you're seeing all this stuff burning and 
you're not able to actually you feel like you're help hopeless and it's um it's apparently significantly impacting a lot of the local fire departments specifically in the bay area um so doing those prescribed burns and minimizing the amount of damage just by burning stuff is something that could be effective for both i guess our ecosystem and for their mental health so they don't have to worry about it as much um so moving on from that i want to shift more towards you and your personal career with advocacy so i want to ask it's kind of like a generic question but in the next 10 to 20 years where would you like to see yourself do you want to be working in washington dc um promoting climate change and hopefully enacting new policies that can help prevent from further damage or is there another path that you want to follow yeah so i see right now um so my current title i'm the policy director and one of the co-founders of the new party coalition Mm -hmm. And so our job there is we see ourselves as like a liaison between the movement in the streets mm -hmm. and the folks in D.C. And so we can make sure that the organizers who are leading the fight um, outside of Washington are able to influence policy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd like to hopefully continue that work um, in whatever shape that looks like. So whether that's, you know working directly with, you know, grassroots organizers and obviously continuing to be a grassroots organizer myself mm -hmm. um, to, you know, perhaps doing something in DC and being more hands-on with the policy. So one of the great things that's actually come out of the pandemic um, and, you know, all, out of all the tragedy and hardship and all, obviously all the terrible stuff is mm -hmm. that things have become a lot more accessible. Um, so we've seen this from, you know, conferences becoming more accessible to folks with disabilities, to people who wouldn't ordinarily have the opportunity to uh, interact with their elected officials because they could never go to Washington, D.C., now have more of an ability to do so because for the first time in history, Congress is allowing virtual lobby meetings. And so it's been really great because I've been able to kind of leverage the position that I've been able to carve out for myself in politics uh, which has been, you know, I've been able to meet face to face with different legislators um, and their staffs and invite mm -hmm. other members of the movement, especially young people, um, to be a part of the legislative process and work directly on policy. And so, you know, I've been working for the past year and a half on all sorts of different pieces of legislation. You know, I've helped write a couple different pieces of legislation that have actually been introduced and then also submitted edits and helps, you know, lobby for dozens of bills, you know, everything from the stimulus packages to immigration pack packages to mm -hmm. the climate packages and energy packages. Um, right. So that's been really great. And so I'd like to, you know, continue doing that in whatever form I think, you know, best suits that is just giving more people opportunities um, who, you know, can really get involved and get their hands dirty and have already been doing that in the streets and give them the opportunity to change policy as well. And we've seen that around the country and you know, thousands and thousands of people are doing that. And so again, I'm just part of this movement that's working to do that. And I'm really grateful to be working alongside all these other folks mm -hmm. that have been able to get more organizers and influence over policy. Yeah. And I mean, so far, it seems like your work has been able to, like you said, bridge the gap between the grassroots and actually working on stuff in Washington, D.C. itself. So, I mean, so far, you're definitely doing a lot for sure and establishing a legacy as well. For younger people who might be interested in uh, starting off in advocacy, specifically for climate change, are, is there any advice you might give to someone or is there anything you might tell someone like, hey, you can do this in order to 
you know, support this whole movement? Yeah, I think my number one piece of advice is start local. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easy to like, you know, turn on the news. And even though climate change is very underreported on, the little that you see about climate change on TV or in the newspaper or something is mostly about national policy. And so it's very easy to think that the only way to actually have an influence is by, you know, going to Washington, D.C. and testifying or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that is just so far from the truth. So my first kind of foray into activism was working with a group called Schools for Climate Action that was started by a teacher in my community um, who worked to get educators on the record pressuring their uh, elected officials about the climate crisis. And so I worked with, you know, a little army of young people in my community pushing on school board members and teachers unions and student councils and, you know, PTA members and getting them to call on elected officials because they had a lot more influence than, you know, us kids did back then. Um, and so from that, I was then able to kind of build up more of a, you know, team and more of an influence myself. And that's how I've been able to then do more stuff on the national level. But, you know, I was able to make much more of an impact locally, which then, of course, allowed me and enabled me to have more of an influence in DC, because what folks in DC respect more than anything else is power because they want to stay in office no matter what. And so if you can show them that you have the people power behind you, they're way more inclined to listen to you. And the only way to build that people power is by organizing in your community and getting your friends, your neighbors, your teachers, your grandma, get them all on board with what you're doing, <laughs> fighting for, make them vocal, vocal and mobilizing. Cause you know, the worst thing that an activist can do is do it alone. And right. so the more people you have on your side, the more powerful you'll be and the more influential your voice will be. I like that. Yeah, the connections and then going to power too. Um, yeah, and I mean, I guess, yeah, like you said, you start local and it doesn't necessarily have to be anything where you're, you know, known or popular in a community and you can just work your way up from there. So it's definitely doable for everybody. Um, I didn't mention this before, but I had wanted to ask um, a brief question about your views on the Green New Deal um, and whether or not you had... Um, you support it or if you think there could be a better deal or if you think uh, or if there's something you'd want to propose in substitution for that. Yeah, so I'm fully supportive of the Green New Deal as a framework for what we need to do. And there are so many policies that make up the Green New Deal that are fantastic. You know, just for example, introduced just last week during Earth Week, uh, Representative Cory Bush, Representative Ocasio-Cortez introduced the Green New Deal for cities, towns, counties and nations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a really fantastic bill. Uh, the Green New Deal for public housing uh, was reintroduced by Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Sanders. Um, you know, Senator Markey's uh, Civilian Climate Corps Act, uh, you know, the Keep It in the Ground Act from mm -hmm. Congressman Huffman, who's my congressman, Luma, and Senator Merkley, the End Polluter Welfare Act from Congresswoman Omar. These are all just fantastic pieces of legislation, you know, components of the Green New Deal that are amazing. One thing that I support, which is kind of a addition, in addition to the Green New Deal, is the Red, Black and Green New Deal campaign, um, which is a really amazing, uh, you know, project being worked on by a bunch of uh, Black and Indigenous organizers and allies um, to make sure that the Green New Deal is, is as intersectional as possible. And so make sure mm -hmm. that when we're fighting for climate justice and fighting against climate change, we're fighting for indigenous sovereignty within the U.S. and around the world. 
uh, you know, we're fighting for environmental justice um, and fighting against, you know, racist policing and things of that nature too. Fighting against redlining, uh, fighting against, you know, minority communities and low-income communities being forced to endure, you know, the atrocities that go on when you live near fossil fuel infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, you know, a global Green New Deal is what we really need. And so making sure that working class people around the world are able to rise up and continue working uh, in solidarity with one another so that we don't end up with a very kind of Eurocentric, United States-centric climate solution where, you know, we're starting coups in Bolivia as, you know, the U.S. and, you know, other supporters did Uh, in 2019 in order to, you know, get more lithium out of the mines for electric cars, because just continuing imperialism and continuing colonialism will get us nowhere. Right. Yeah. Those blood ores and the and and the use and exploitation of countries that are rich in those minerals, it's it's, uh, it's definitely another systemic problem that has to be dealt with. And I hope that the United States, if we're able to pursue more climate friendly policies that other countries will follow suit, but hopefully if it's not us, then it's someone else, but I'm hoping it is us. Um, I think that is all the questions I have for you today, Jonah. Um, is there anything you had wanted to mention specifically on this podcast? Like, is there anything you wanted to plug or is there anything you wanted to um, talk about on here? Yeah. So if you want to check out the work that my team and I are doing at the New Party Coalition, you can go to newpartycoalition.org and see how you can get involved there. Perfect. All right. And thank you again, Jonah. We really appreciate it. I want to thank Jonah for taking his time to speak with us today. And for those who are out there listening, thank you guys as well. also want to give a shout out to Cray for helping edit this podcast. You can visit us at our website at youthadvocatesforchange.org. And you can follow us on Instagram at youthadvocatesforchange. This has been Vince Wool signing off and we'll see you guys next time.